good morning. This morning's going to be a little bit different. Um, usually uh, uh, we'll have some time of singing and then I'll preach and then we'll have some more time of singing and then dismiss and go to the next service. This, this morning between the two services we're having baptisms and so it'll be a little bit different this morning. After I'm done I'm going to um, uh, semi-dismiss but, but ask you to stay. Uh, so that we can all participate with the next group uh, that's going to be coming in. So it's going to be a little uh, crazy in here, busy in here, but all for the glory of God and, and uh, as people display what he has done in their hearts through baptism. And so um, you bear with us, and I'll kind of walk us through that as we get there. But I want to give you a reminder. Um, uh, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 12. Through the end of the chapter, verse 20, uh, this week, and then next week, we're beginning chapter 7 and, and going to try to make it through the first uh, nine verses of chapter 7. And announced this this uh, last week to give you a heads up. Usually, we don't have elementary ministry, uh, kids' ministry that going through fifth grade for the first service. That's only for the second service. However, with the uh, content that we're going to be talking about from 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, this week and next week, we are offering uh, children's ministry all the way up through the fifth grade for the first service. So if you have uh, first through fifth graders and they're in here right now and you would like to escape them from this, um, you are welcome to do that. And, and you'll have some time to do that while uh, I'm prefacing and all of that. But we're going to be talking about some things that will raise questions and we want to let you know that ahead of time in case uh, you're not prepared to receive those questions on the way home today. So... Um, so turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want to uh, read you Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, here's my question as we get into today's, to today's passage and also leading into next week's passage. Do you believe that's true? Do you really believe that that's true, that no creature is hidden from God's sight? That we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of God and that he will judge us. We must give an account for what we do for the actions that we take part in, for the things that we say, for the things we participate in. Do you believe that? I I really do believe as we talk about sexual immorality this week and then marriage next week, I really do believe that so much of sexual sin is tied to a lack of belief in this. That, that when we are alone or when we're with someone else of the opposite sex or in an intimate situation, we, don't, we look around, we look over our shoulders, we look left, we look right, we look to see if anyone else is observing and watching, but we don't look up. We become, in those circumstances, practical atheists. We say we believe that God is there. We say that we believe that no creature is hidden from His sight, that all are naked and are exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. But then we get into certain circumstances and we live as if that's not true. And so many of the things that we fall into and that people fall into and believers fall into as it relates to sexual sin is because we become practical atheists. We don't believe. We look around, but we don't look up. We don't believe that God really is there, really is looking into our circumstances. We're going to be talking about sex this week and next week. As we get into it, as we start this uh, today and and carry it through next week. I want to read you a quote from Al Mohler. And actually, let me um, commend this book to you because there is no way, especially as I was studying through this week and just kind of sitting at my desk thinking, gosh, we could do a six to eight week series just on this week's passage and then take it another however many weeks for next week's passage. We can't cover everything this morning, okay? And I want to commend this book to you, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. It's edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor, several contributors to it, including uh, Al Mohler and and John Piper and Justin Taylor and and others uh, that I don't need to mention. But in the introduction to this, Al Mohler is quoted, and he says this, Christians have no right to be embarrassed when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality. 
An unhealthy reticence or embarrassment in dealing with these issues is a form of disrespect to God's creation. Whatever God made is good. And every good thing God made has an intended purpose that ultimately reveals his own glory. When conservative Christians respond to sex with ambivalence or embarrassment, we slander the goodness of God and hide God's glory, which is intended to be revealed in the right use of creation's gifts. So often I think our shame and our embarrassment about talking about it comes because we've misused it. We have not used it for the glory of God. We're going to talk about this more next week, but God is not against sex. He created sex. He blessed it. And when it's used exclusively within marriage as the Lord intends, then it is beautiful, it is satisfying, and it is glorifying to Him. I grew up in a church when sex was not talked about at all. It was never preached about. That's not good. But I feel like we're in a culture that's living in response to that time. And so now, if you pick the right churches, you can go to church and and, and pretty much have a 50-50 chance of hearing a sermon on sex, okay? I think the pendulum has swung from the wrong direction this way to the wrong direction the opposite way. And now, as Christians, we're kind of delving into talking about it in a way that we might need to be ashamed of. Because we're going down paths and opening doors that I believe the Corinthians were opening and involving themselves in that we need to be careful of. And so we want to be cautious in this area. We want to be wise, but we should talk about it and we must talk about it. We live in a sex-crazed culture like Corinth. And we must address sex biblically. We should have a good theology of sex Seriously, we need to have a good theology of sex. We must encourage each other and our children to glorify God with our bodies and to treasure Christ more, not sex more, as our ultimate joy. And here is a one of many reasons why. This is from uh, CovenantEyes.com. Here's some statistics. That's a warning. Seventy percent of boys have spent more than 30 consecutive minutes looking at online pornography on at least one occasion. Thirty five percent of boys have done this on more than 10 occasions. Twenty three percent of girls have spent more than 30 minutes looking at online pornography on at least one occasion. Fourteen percent of girls have done this on more than 10 occasions. 83% of boys and 57% of girls have seen group sex on the internet. 69% of boys and 55% of girls have seen porn showing same-sex intercourse. 39% of boys and 23% of girls have seen online sex acts involving bondage. 32% of boys and 18% of girls have viewed bestiality on the internet. 18% of boys and 10% of girls have seen rape or sexual violence online. 15% of boys and 9% of girls have seen child pornography. Listen to this. Only 3% of boys and 17% of girls have never seen pornography on the internet. 3% of boys, 17% of girls. I have... Five boys. I am praying like crazy that they are the 3%. I'm praying like crazy that they live a life and by their bodies they glorify God with their eyes, with their hearts, with their bodies. We have to talk about this and we have to have a biblical theology of sex. And so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 20. This is a lot, I know. But let's stand together, just follow along as I read. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm so grateful for your word. You know what is in man. You know the desires of our flesh. And so we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for your word that you have not left us ignorant of yourself and ignorant of what you desire and ignorant of what you expect of your children. You have saved us. You have bought us. You have set us apart. You have called us to holiness. You have equipped us for holiness by the power of your spirit. And so we praise you. We thank you. I ask God that you would do what only you can do in this time, God. That you would reveal sin in our hearts. That you would bring healing. That you bring repentance that you would bring salvation to those who do not know you. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We're going to take uh, the verses out of order a bit. We're going to start at the end and then work our way back through, starting with verse 19 and 20, and then hopefully letting that kind of navigate through as we go through verses 12 through 18, but also as we look next week at chapter 7. Verses 19 and 20 are going to kind of be our grounding that help navigate us through these things, okay? And so if we go back to verses 19 and 20, or look again at 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The key, I think, to purity... In our minds and with our bodies is verse 20. At the end of the verse, glorify God in your body. The key to purity is to glorify God in your body. That's what it says here. So glorify God in your body. And I think the paths toward glorifying God in your body are seen here in verses 19 and 20. It comes from knowing and believing And just like we said in the beginning, believing is looking up, believing that someone is actually there looking into our circumstances. The path towards glorifying God in our body comes by knowing and believing two things. Your body, my body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Just as he says earlier in the book, in chapter 3, speaking of us as the body of Christ, and corporally how we are the temple of God, God's Spirit dwelling in us. He he gives us another picture of how we individually, here in chapter 6, verse 20, we individually are the temple of God, God's Holy Spirit being placed inside of us. That ought to navigate our thinking as to what is good and what is pleasing and what is all right and what is okay and what is acceptable when it comes to using our body, including our minds, in glorifying God in purity. We're the temple of God. He dwells in us. And not just that, he says, you were bought with a price. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you so that you might be clean. And just as we looked at last week, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That didn't just happen. Jesus died for that. 
His blood was shed for that. And so if we're going to seek to glorify God in our body and seek purity in that way, then these two things are crucial. These thoughts glorify God in your body, and the road to doing that is realizing that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you were bought with a price. Those truths keep us from playing games with this passage. Because the temptation is we're going to go to the middle of the passage and say, well, I would never be joined to a prostitute. I wouldn't do that. If for no other reason, out of shame, out of fear that I would be arrested or fear of anything else, I wouldn't do that. The truth of the passage is when we get to glorify God in your body and the realization that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit and you're not your own, you're bought with a price, this helps us to navigate through that. Because that kind of thinking that looks at this passage and says, I I would never be joined with a prostitute, misses Paul's point completely. You're missing the point if you're looking for loopholes. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, and you were bought with a price so... Since those two things are true, honor him with everything you are and everything you have and everything you do. Honor him because of who you are. You're not your own. You're his. Your body is not your own. It belongs to him. It was bought by him through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're the temple of his Holy Spirit, God's spirit dwelling in you. And so as we live in the midst of a sex-crazed culture, these truths can help us to navigate. If we believe, if we believe, these truths can help us to navigate even through a culture like this, just as it was in Corinth. They help us to see that there are not as many gray areas as we have convinced ourselves of. And so thinking that way, thinking that our desire is to glorify God in our body, thinking that the the way to do that is to realize who we are in Christ, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we've been bought by the blood of Christ. Let's kind of work our way through verses 12 through the end. Paul says to them, writes to them, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. That phrase, all things are lawful for me. You see there's a couple phrases in the the text that are in uh, quotation marks. This is because it was a quotation. It was probably a commonly used slogan among the Corinthians. It may have started or originated with Paul. We don't know where it originated. He doesn't disagree with the statement, all things are lawful for me. But he brings clarity. He brings direction to it. He doesn't deny it. He clarifies it. He says, all things are lawful for me. This is their quote that they're boasting in. But he responds to that, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things are good. All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved, he says, by anything. I won't be a slave. I won't be mastered by anything. Just because all things are lawful, again, he's not denying that, but just because all things are lawful does not mean that they're helpful or good. And certainly it doesn't mean that you will not be enslaved. The the Corinthians had, had taken this expression that all things are lawful for me and hijacked it. And so rather than seeing the true meaning of it, they're using it alongside of another saying of theirs that we see in the next verse, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. They're taking these two things together and using it so that they might gratify their own desires. All things are lawful for me and the food is meant, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And they're using it as a theological excuse for sin. The body, they would say, is permitted to have everything it craves. Sex is no different than eating. Stomach was made for food. When my my stomach begins to growl, I know what that means. My stomach was made for food and food was made for my stomach. So when my stomach begins to growl, I put food into my body. And they took that saying and attached it with all things are lawful for me. And and, and the thinking is, well, therefore, when my sexual uh, stomach begins to growl, then I'm going to feed it as well. And it's okay. It's fine because all things are lawful for me. Sex is no different than eating, they would say. The stomach was made for food and the body was made for sex. 
Paul's steering their understanding back to the Bible. He says, not all things are helpful. I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. Are we free? We are free. Is it true that all things are lawful for me? Absolutely. Are we free in Christ? Yes. But what does that mean? What does it mean that we're free in Christ? Certainly Paul would boast in that. He wrote an entire book of the scriptures with that in mind. We're free in Christ. Galatians. And he addresses it there. What does that mean? Galatians 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What does freedom in Christ look like? Standing firm and not submitting again to a yoke of slavery. Not having our mind shift back again to a works righteousness that we can do certain things to get saved. And then when we're saved, we can do whatever we want. Don't shift back to that. He goes on in verse 13. He says, for freedom, Christ, or for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. That's where the Corinthians missed it. Are they free in Christ? Absolutely. But what does freedom lead us to? It leads us to thinking that says, I'm not going to use my freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, but to glorify God and through love, I'm going to serve others. The Corinthians missed that. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians. I won't be enslaved. I won't be mastered by anything or anyone except for Christ because Christ is the one that set me free. Not me. Christ set me free. The Corinthians were using their freedom as an excuse for sin. They were serving themselves. That's not what Christian freedom looks like. Paul had written to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're either, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? All things are lawful for me. We're indeed free in Christ. But when we give ourselves to sin, we are slaves, not to Christ. We're slaves to sin, to unrighteousness. That's Paul's point here. I won't be enslaved by anything. And so Paul responds to their skewed, unbiblical thinking by saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God's going to destroy both of them. At some point, both are going to deteriorate. Now, the Corinthians are thinking this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. They're thinking that that is true. They're thinking that the body is going to die. But Paul clarifies and says, look, the body, he says in verse 13, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord And the Lord for the body. Now, he's going to clarify that more. But the point here is the body is made and meant for the Lord. We are created. We're made in the image of God. We were made to glorify him, glorify God. Our bodies have been given to us for one purpose, as an instrument to glorify Christ. Your body My body was given to me for one purpose, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Your bodies, he says, are for the Lord. And Christ for the body. The Lord for the body. What does that mean? It means he's not indifferent to your body. Christ is concerned for your body. He is for your body. He's not indifferent to it. We can't check out and think it's okay like the Corinthians are thinking. It doesn't matter what I do with my body because the body's going to die and it's going to be gone. It matters. Your body was purposefully created in the image of God for the glory of God. It matters what we do with our bodies, Paul says. Christ is for your body. He's not indifferent to your body. He goes on in verse 14, And God raised the Lord... 
and will also raise us up by his power. The Corinthians were right. The body's going to deteriorate. The body's going to go into the ground. The body is going to die. Food and the body will eventually die and deteriorate. That's going to happen. But Christ has a purpose for our bodies beyond this life. It doesn't end there. Just as, just as Jesus' body is eternal, our body is eternal. We'll be resurrected. We'll be given new life. We'll be glorified, receiving glorified bodies. Not these bodies that will deteriorate, but they'll be glorified. And because our bodies are meant to go on and not die forever, this should affect our behavior, Paul's saying. We should be thinking this way. Our bodies are designed to serve not only in this life, but in the life to come. That should affect how we use it for the glory of God. It should affect how we think about it. The Corinthians thinking is the body's going to die So let's just eat and drink and have as much sex as we want. And the body will die and our soul will live forever and everyone will be happy. They're making self an idol, not Christ their God. Goes on in verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. Paul later in the book, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Just, Just think about what Paul is telling us here. If you're in Christ, your body... Individually, your body is a member of Christ. You're a part of the body of Christ. That's who you are. You're a part of the body of Christ. God's spirit dwells in you. We're called to glorify God with our body. Christ, whose body we are making up in this world, bought us with his very blood. He's trying to motivate us and give us understanding so that we will glorify God with our bodies. You're a member of Christ, Paul says. You're a member of Christ. Now, thinking that way, how could we possibly rationalize using a part of Christ's body for sexual immorality? It's the point that Paul's making. How could we even go there in our thinking if we realize that we're in Christ and we are a member of the body of Christ? How could we go there that we would willingly take a member of Christ's body to participate in sexual immorality? How could we do that? Now, again, we we need to be careful. and We want to keep from self-deception thinking that, well, I wouldn't do that with a prostitute. The truth of this verse is your bodies, including your eyes and your hands, are members of Christ. Your eyes are a part of his body, too. How can we take part of the body of Christ and look upon pornography? It's the same truth. How can we justify that? How can we do that with the eyes of Christ? How could we use our hands in a way that dishonor him? How could we use his body as instruments of unrighteousness? Paul says, never, never, never. Jesus going directly to the heart of the issue in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, gives us this, this thinking of do whatever it takes. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have had lustful thoughts of another woman, then you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it'd be better for you to go through life with one hand than to go into hell with your whole body. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out because it'd be better for you to go through the world with with just one eye than to go into hell with your whole body. 
Jesus is not mixing words here. He's absolutely clear. This is a battle for the glory of God. And our members, including our eyes and our hands, are members of Christ. And we're called to use them for his glory, not for our glory, as the Corinthians were doing. And if we're truthful, many of us in the church are doing we live in a culture just like Corinth, and we see the statistics over and over and over. People who are set apart by God to live holy lives, to live as holy people in their conduct. Falling, 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 falling. It's not okay, Paul says. It's not okay where it's, whether it's visual, whether it's in our thoughts, whether it's physical. It's not okay. We're members of Christ. We are members of Christ. May it never, ever, ever, ever be. Jesus says, fight, fight, fight for it. Paul's saying here, flee. Do you not know, verse 16, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, for, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul's giving us a picture here. Even in, in the midst of warning, he's giving us a picture of, of the, the purpose of sex, that it is good and it is purposeful. That word joined, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute means to cleave or hold fast? It's the word that's used when, when in the first marriage, when in Genesis chapter 2, 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Paul's taking them to the heart of what sex is supposed to be. It's a display of the covenant of marriage. It's a demonstration of the covenant of marriage, of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sexual relations involves a union. The man and the woman become one flesh. That's what the scripture says teaches us the most essential meaning to that part one flesh is sexual union yes there is a supernatural thing that happens where god takes two people and supernaturally brings them together absolutely but there's a physical aspect of that as well that's why paul uses it here in in verse 16 to demonstrate his point Sex is meant to display covenant. Sex is meant to bind a husband and wife in a covenant relationship. Sex is covenant renewing. If you have not made that covenant in marriage, then it's off limits. There's biblical theology of sex. If you have not made that covenant, it's off limits. You cannot say as an unmarried person or a married person going outside of the covenant of marriage that it didn't mean anything. It always means something. It always means the same thing. Because it wasn't created by you, it was created by God for a purpose. It comes after marriage, after covenant. And when you go outside of your marriage or when you have not been married to a person and you're with them physically, physically, sexually, then you're making a promise to someone that you can't keep or that you're not willing to keep because you haven't made covenant with them. You don't go there. Rather than joining cleaving to a prostitute or anyone you are not married to. Paul says, flee, flee, run from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Ephesians 5 verse 3, Paul writes, sexual immorality must not even be named 
among you. I love the NIV version where it says um, that sexual immorality, there there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Not even a hint. It must not even be named. It shouldn't even come up in circles as being attached to you as the body of Christ. Not even a hint. Just don't even go there. Flee from it, Paul says. Flee from sexual immorality. That word flee here means to keep running, keep fleeing until the danger is past. When there's danger, that's not time to discuss it. That's not time to sit down and, to, and, and discuss what's okay and what's not okay. It's not time to think about it. It's not time to rationalize it. It's not a process of evaluating. It's time to run, to flee. In Genesis 39, we have a great picture of that with Joseph where Potiphar's wife grabs him with intent for sexual immorality. And what does he do? It says he fled and got out of the house. Now, what does it mean when it says what, uh, that every other sin is outside the body? It says flee from it because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sex is unique. Sexual sin is unique. It, it, the temptation of it rises from within our body bent on personal gratification. Sex is the deepest uniting of two people, and therefore its misuse corrupts on the deepest level. He's not saying here it's the worst sin. But it's inside of us. And and ultimately, the purpose of him saying that is because of verse 19. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You're the temple. You're sinning against the temple of God. In Genesis 39, just before Potiphar grabs Joseph and she's trying to lure him in another circumstance, he says to her, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? What we need is a mindset like that, an understanding that there's more on the line than just our gratification and our joy. There's more on the line than that. It's about God, and we need a bigger, truer thought of God. We need to be staggered by God. We need to be in awe of God. We need to realize the joy and what it means that God's Spirit dwells within us, and that's a real, true thing that that should change our lives, change our thinking. In fact, let me read quickly. John Piper quote. writes in here, he says, My conviction is that one of the main reasons the world and the church are awash in lust and pornography by both men and women, 30% of internet pornography is now viewed by women, is that our lives are intellectually and emotionally disconnected from the infinite, soul-staggering grandeur for which we were made, inside and outside the church. Western culture is drowning in a sea of triviality, pettiness, banality, and silliness. Television is trivial. Radio is trivial. Conversation is trivial. Education is trivial. Christian books are trivial. Worship styles are trivial. It is inevitable that the human heart, which was made to be staggered with the supremacy of Christ, but instead is drowning in a sea of banal entertainment, will reach for the best natural buzz that life can give and that is sex we need to be staggered by god we need to be in awe of who he is and what he has done we're the temple of the holy spirit and so we come back to verses 19 and 20 to our foundation you are the temple you're the temple of the holy spirit you were bought with a price the price was the blood of jesus he says you're not your own and and therefore we do what he says not what we just want to do we're not looking for loopholes we're not looking for excuses we're looking for christ and to glorify him with our bodies we don't play around with his body we glorify him with everything and so i want to Wrap this up as quickly as we can. We're running short here. And think practically 
How should this affect our thinking and our living? How do we glorify God with our bodies? How does it affect our relationship? It affects how we see each other, how we treat each other. If we are seeking to glorify God with our body, that includes our mind, and it begins there. We need the Lord to to transform our minds. We're not asking what is permissible, what we can get away with. We're asking what is glorifying to God. That's the question we have to ask. Not where is the line, not how close can we get to the line, but what is glorifying to God. And just a few passages I want you to think through. You don't have to turn there, it's brief. But 1 Timothy, if you don't turn there, write it down or just put it in your head. 1 Timothy chapter 5, listen carefully. How should we be thinking? How should we be thinking purity so that we glorify God with our bodies, which includes our minds? In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Now, what in the world does that have to do with sex? It has everything to do with it. Treat younger men as brothers and younger sisters, younger women like sisters in all purity. Guys, this is your standard. If you want to ask yourself a question, don't ask, is it permissible? Ask, would I do that with my sister? That's what this passage means. Would I think that about my sister? Would I go there with my sister? Don't ask what is permissible. And the same with ladies. This is how you're to be treated. So dress and act like you desire this. Don't ask what is permissible or what will keep him around. Ask, would I do that with my brother? Would I do that with my brother? Would I think that about my brother? Would I allow that from my brother? This is about purity. It's about purity. Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor, and that goes beyond the brothers and sisters in Christ. He tells us that. Jesus says to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Sexual immorality is a breaking of that command. We're not loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves if we're going there. We're not. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That word wrong, do not wrong. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. That word wrong, and if you have a New American Standard, it uses the word defraud instead. It means to deprive of something by deception or fraud. When you are with someone else sexually who you are not married with, you're promising, that's exactly what you're defrauding. You're promising the benefits of marriage to someone you either have no intention of marrying or no idea whether you actually will. You're you're making a promise you cannot keep, and it's wrong. This is about purity, not avoiding sexual intercourse. This is about purity. We're called to purity, and not just until we get married. I've heard people say before, I'm committing myself to purity until I get married. No. You're committing yourself to purity forever. We'll talk about next week. Purity goes, believe it or not, Past the marriage ceremony. We're called to be pure as a married couple as well. It's about purity. And let me just throw some things at you as you think about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Single people or married people who are going out of your marriage to gratify yourself. If it's not acceptable for me to do with a woman who is not my wife, then it is not acceptable for you to do either. 
All of the things that dating couples do, all of the things that they engage in physically short of intercourse, married couples engage in too. Here's the difference. Married couples have a name for it. It's called foreplay. And so while single people are coupled up and, 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 and saying to each other, this is great because it's not sex, married couples are excited and saying this is great because it's part of sex. There's not a line that begins and ends at, at sexual intercourse. It's about purity. All of those things, dressing to attract, teasing to lust other people, looking lustfully, suggestive remarks, crude humor, erotic kissing, petting, etc., are leading to something. They are a part of sex. And truthfully, they are almost always leading to something, if nothing else, self-gratification. I know, I know, this is heavy stuff. But the truth is, so many people here are dealing with it. And we have to deal with it biblically. It's not okay. It's not okay. Self-gratification is a distortion of God's creation. It is self-seeking. Self-gratification teaches people to satisfy themselves. It's about laziness, self-centeredness, not about covenant-keeping, which sex is completely about. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And the Holy Spirit who dwells within you gives you self-control. And therefore whether it's self-gratification or going outside of the marriage or just going where you shouldn't go as a single person. Sexual immorality is a denial of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so let me say just a couple things in closing. I know I said that once before. I know that some of you may hear this likely. Some of you may hear this and you hear it with hurt. You've been victimized. You've been wounded. You've been abused. You've been molested. And you may hear this. You may hear a sermon on this and, and, and hear someone saying you need a biblical uh, theology of sex. And, and what comes to your mind is you may think you don't understand, Tony. I want to respond to that in two ways. First of all, I totally understand I totally understand. I'll give you briefly, when I was 9 and 10 years old, there was a respected man in our community. He was a friend of our family. He played piano at a church. Reputable, reputable business owner. And he molested me several times. My parents trusted him. I trusted him. People in the church trusted him. But let me just, let me just tell you, okay? What he did to me, that is not my identity. That does not define me. His sin does not define me. If you've been sinned against, that does not define you. If you are in Christ, you are his. You are his. My identity is in Christ. I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified, and that man's sin does not define me. I'm defined by Christ's righteousness, and I am created to glorify God now with my body. And that cannot be done by, by me disobeying Him. It can't be. And secondly, on that, if you're hurting and, 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 and you may think that, that I don't understand... Let me just say, secondly, it wouldn't matter if I didn't understand. Because Jesus does. And, 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 and the caution that I wanted to take in sharing that with you was only this. Not out of shame, but that you would be more influenced by my story than you are by the love of Christ. He can heal you. I can't heal you. He can heal you. He is for your body. So glorify him with it. He can heal you. He has healed me. I have no anger whatsoever towards that man. If I saw him, if he walked into the room right now, I would forgive him to his face. I have no anger whatsoever. 
Not because of me, because of Christ. Christ has forgiven me for the sins that I've committed against God. There's healing in Christ for those things. And so let me give you very quickly two, three words, okay? What do we do as it relates to purity and glorifying God with your body? Three things. Think, pray, and fight for it. Think about the gospel. This is for all of us. Think about the gospel and that you were bought with a price. Think about the fact that you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Think about the beauty of Christ and that you are a member of His body. And then secondly, pray. Pray for the genuine desire to glorify Him. So often I think we get... We feel guilty, but we don't have a genuine desire to glorify him. Augustine Augustine wrote this, As I prayed to you for the gift of chastity, I had even pleaded, Grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me forthwith of the morbid lust which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. Pray for a genuine desire to glorify him. And third, fight for it. Jesus said, gouge out your eyes, cut off your hand. Paul says, flee. The battle begins before you are alone. The battle begins before you are on a date. The battle begins before you knock on the door. The battle begins now in our hearts and in our minds. In 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 and 2, we see that what led to David sinning sexually was pride and leisure. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing. He was lazy. He became a man of leisure and pride. Stay in the fight. Don't wait till you're in a compromising moment to decide what to do. Remember what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. The reason that the Gentiles do the things they do and think the way they think is because they don't know God is what Paul says. And so pray, think, pray, and fight for the glory of God and the hope of sanctification. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time, Lord. I know know it's a lot to cover in a short amount of time, and God so grateful that the hope of change is in you i pray for true surrender i pray for anyone here who's struggling in sexual immorality whether it's with their thoughts or their eyes or whatever lord i pray for your help i pray that you would heal those who have been hurt i pray that they would see the beauty and the glory of jesus christ and the purposefulness of sex and that they would surrender their desires to you lord and that you be glorified through our bodies. I praise you that we're, we're going from this into a time where we display you through baptism and what you have done, that it is possible for us to be clean on the inside and that people are going to be displaying that today, God. I praise you for that. Be glorified through our response in Christ's name. Amen.